You're listening to The Details, a podcast from Mr. Porter about the little things that matter in men's style. In the course of this series, we'll be travelling around the globe to delve deep into buttons, zips, collars, labels, stitching, pleats and darts. We'll talk to world-famous designers about the secret subtleties that are hidden in the fastenings of their coats and the seams of their trousers. And we'll be getting up close and personal with collectors, craftspeople and enthusiasts, unveiling the meaning and emotion packed into even the tiniest elements of modern menswear. Is it time for me to put my trousers on? That sound you hear is me being indecisive about a pair of trousers. Do you like the look of cropped or do you prefer more of a traditional...? I'm getting them taken up by a tailor, Miss Charlotte Sweet of London's Sewn Right, and she is being very patient and understanding, which is just as well. There is no right or wrong answer. It's completely your preference. Trying to get trousers right is a recurring nightmare of mine. I can never decide whether I want them dead straight or with a crease, or whether, against all common sense, I should go for the ever-trendy ankle swinger option. I've done it a hundred times, but still, hmm, I don't know. What I do know, though, is that eventually... Whatever I decide to do with these trousers, Miss Sweet will be able to make it happen, with nothing more complicated than a needle and thread. And that's because all clothes, however complex they are, are ultimately held together by the same ancient process, the act of pulling a length of cotton yarn through two layers of fabric. Over the past few centuries, with these same three ingredients, a needle, some thread, a bit of patience, Designers and clothes makers have created new and unusual shapes to accommodate and accentuate the human body. They have used thread to protect and reinforce, to repair and adapt, to decorate and embellish, and even, in some cases, to keep history alive. More recently, they have done this work with the help of machines, but a lot of it still needs to be done by hand, the old-fashioned way, you might think of it as a technology that has never been superseded. The break is just a bit more of a traditional and formal way to... I'm Adam Welsh, a writer and Mr Porter contributing editor. Today, once I get my trousers sorted, we're going to talk about stitching. It's not cropped, but it's just cool and it suits your leg shape and yeah, I think it looks really good. Thank you. Very, very welcome. I'll get back into my day wear. A stitch is a single turn or loop of thread that is used in sewing to fasten or attach objects together. Either by hand or by machine, the stitch really is the common thread that runs throughout every garment that has ever been produced by humans, from the humblest workwear to the finest Savile Row suit. Stitching is at least 12,000 years old, dating all the way back to the Paleolithic era when Stone Age people sewed together fur and skin using thread made from the sinews, veins or catgut of animals. The earliest garment that has survived is the Tarkin dress, which dates back some 5,000 years and is constructed in the finest linen 
and stitched in a manner worthy of modern couture. Incredibly, between hunting and being hunted by woolly mammoths, bears, wolves and lions, early man managed to develop some sophisticated clothes. Although it was invented in 1790, it wasn't until the 1850s that the industrial sewing machine had evolved sufficiently to be faster and more productive than either seamstress or tailor sewing by hand. This revolutionary moment saw the construction of clothes and the creation of fashion go from being an intimate dialogue between the client and couturier or tailor to gradually becoming an impersonal, industrialized process, focusing on maximizing economies of scale and minimizing individuality. Huge factories were set up to manufacture fashion on an industrial scale, leading to the development of the ready-to-wear industry that we know today. As mass production became the norm, the perfection of the machine-stitched garment, once highly prized, seemed to lack emotional warmth and was seen to be impersonal, and so the imperfection of the hand-stitch came to be seen as more human and more desirable. It became a status symbol, since hand-sewn garments took longer to create and allowed both for individualization and bespoke creativity centered around the individual's needs. That was Andrew Groves, Professor of Fashion at London's University of Westminster, explaining a crucial aspect of fashion today, how the idea of hand-stitching has become central to our understanding of quality. In the past decade, designers and brands have tended to communicate this by taking us behind the scenes, showing us the expert hand-stitching techniques that go into producing a polished, seemingly perfect final product. But recently, it seemed like even this hasn't been enough to satisfy our craving for the touch and aesthetic of human handiwork. In fact, more and more designers in contemporary menswear are now producing products that not only are hand-stitched, but look hand-stitched. That is, garments that are not entirely perfect, asymmetrical, patched and repatched, mended and amended. The current leader on this particular front is the New York-based CFDA award-winning designer Emily Bodie. Emily launched her brand, Bodie, in 2016, with a collection entirely handcrafted from repurposed vintage textiles. Her clothes are not only innovative in their use of unusual materials, from quilts and crochet shawls to recycled velvet and vinyl upholstery fabric, but in the way they wear their craft on their sleeves, so to speak. So many of the one-off fabrics used in Bodhi clothing have to be repaired or treated in some way before they can be used, that darning and stitching has become a major part of the overall aesthetic. I caught up with Emily in Paris in early 2020, just as she was showing her upcoming autumn-winter collection to the press. Her showroom, like her clothing, was entirely repurposed. Is this the right way round? A small, parquet-floored flat where her extraordinary clothes lined the walls, like an incredibly well-stocked walk-in wardrobe. It's called a Suester hat, and that was for fishermen. And you okay, so over here we have the pieces that were inspired by the Boy Scouts of America jack shirt uniforms. We did this on a historic textile. It's a red corduroy from England, actually. Each patch, you know, some have to do with the Boy Scouts, but some have absolutely nothing to do with them. I think what's amazing to see when you're in the showroom with Bodhi clothes on all four sides of you is the 
incredible range of different textures and effects that you've created through stitching. Yeah, and you can see that there's different uses of the hand stitching. One like this, like the heavier patchwork pieces, that stitching was made to be visible and it was made to be exemplary of the person who made the quilt. Whereas this one is the stitches are actually have like a utilitarian purpose. It's just to hold the batting between the top and the bottom. So the stitches themselves create the quilt, whereas, you know, some of these are just solely for embroidery. How and when did you learn to sew? I must have been in first grade. We made these bunnies out of socks. That was when I first learned to sew. My mom sent me a picture recently, right after my last runway, being like, oh, you've come so far, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it was very cute. Of course, the way you're working now is you're creating a lot of garments that are hybrid pieces, so sourcing different fabrics, different textures. How crucial is stitching and playing with stitching to that as a kind of core aspect of the design? 40% of the brand is made from antique textiles, so that's utilizing craft like applique and, you know, celebrating mending and all the different variations of that in different cultures, as well as quilting and, you know, our individual piecework. And we also reproduce those stitches. The trajectory of learning about that has been like quite steep right now. You know, I, I had taken embroidery classes in college and you feel like you know quite a bit about stitching, right? And then every new collection, we learn so much more. There's something so kind of wonderful and organic to almost like an amateurish or a homemade hand-stitched piece. What are the things that you've discovered when you've been trying to reintroduce those effects? It's kind of like a weird double design because you're taking something that was not designed and then turning it into right. design and then trying to reproduce that. I am so in love with the imperfections. It's hard to communicate that to your factory sometimes. It's actually a little bit easier in India because I think they get it, you know, with the hand quality. You know, we'll reproduce a historical quilt and it'll have little patches and without even saying, please include that patch that was like hiding something, <laughs> they, they'll do it. And that's, that's really cool. They have like a care for detail like we do. I love the mending and I love all these little intricacies of darning. And we do so much of that on both new fabrics and antique textiles. Can you explain how the kind of aesthetics of that made its way into your work? I understand that it was through finding imperfect vintage fabrics in the first place and then through necessity almost having to patch them up. We have an entire studio team that really is just focused on preserving these textiles and that involves a lot of patchwork and a lot of mending. The importance of it for me is about being able to cherish your garments and your objects and not feeling like once you get a stain on it or once you get a small tear that you simply throw it away or something or you donate it. I've always taken care to mend my clothing and I think it's a beautiful way of cherishing something. Our customers are learning that from us. So many of them bring their clothes back season after season to mend something or resize it 
We have a traditional menswear mentality in that with most of our trousers, we have quite a big seam allowance in the back so that you can continue to tailor season on season and over the years, because otherwise, you know, you grow out of things and you gain weight and you lose weight. And it's just like a nice aspect of what we offer. That's a topic that a lot of people in retail are talking about at the moment. Do you ever think much about this idea of a circular economy? Yeah, of course. And I think a lot of business owners are fearful of that because they don't understand how you would be able to make money, you know, if you <laughs> if you have to just not put out a new collection and sell this many garments. But there's more to it. For us, it's so much about changing the culture and the culture of dressing and the culture of buying and really how you build your home, how you build your lifestyle and what you care about. And if we can achieve sharing that wisdom of how to care for your clothes, how to preserve your own family history and your heirlooms, and we've like succeeded. Could you explain what the beginning point for a collection is? Well, it begins with a conversation that I have with whoever is informing or inspiring the collection. So through those conversations, I then source textiles and ideas and inspiration that we want to incorporate within the season. What's cool is they're surrounded by stacks and stacks of fabrics. So you can kind of pick and choose what might work within this collection, what we're missing. I think having that sort of inventory and keeping up with that inventory is a big part of why we've hit a level of success in three and a half years. How far do small hands-on processes involving stitching and joining actually influence the final design of a garment? So much. The small swatch making and the influence of like individual stitches, that's a huge part of our shirts. You know, it'll be a small scene on a handkerchief and then we'll take that aspect and utilize it on, you know, maybe a silk linen blend and do a little ski scene. And this season we did a jacket entirely made of crocheted florets of merino wool. That began with seeing those florets in a vintage textile and then working with one of my studio assistants on how we could make that into a jacket. Can we go and have a look? Yes. Do you think it'd be nice to have an audio? So this, there's some cheeky like 1970s patches. It says, you know, what you see is what you get. Uh, if it tastes good, eat it. <laughs> you know, and then we have much older achievement patches like choir and these little clovers. And this one is really cool. It's a hand cross-stitched patch and this one is done on felt. This is, you know, it says 1956 on it, and it's totally worn. Some of these are fraying, but they're really all beautiful. And then this is, a, you know, probably from the late 80s. They're, they're really fun. You know, they're, they're just meant to be ephemeral. I'm interested in, as well in the, in the way that you recontextualize stitches too. So what is it that you like about, say, taking a stitch that you find on a handkerchief and putting it on a shirt or like on a cushion or an embroidery that you find on some upholstery or curtain and taking that into clothing? The way I see it is when you have a small scene on a handkerchief, that was something that someone made for someone. And it was a, usually a gift of love or 
when you take that and you then celebrate it on a larger scale, I think it's really interesting and intriguing because people spent so much time and energy on that one little thing. They wouldn't have been able to do that type of embroidery on a tablecloth because it would have taken, you know, a year. Do you have a favorite stitch or an example of one of those that you've come across recently or, or in this collection? Oh gosh, in this collection, there's a really cool idea of the jack shirt. It was a Boy Scouts of America wool shirt jacket that became popularized. You would put your patches on it of achievement or merit. We reinterpreted that into a little zip-up jacket and a trouser and a long coat and a hat. I think being able to take what it was, it was a uniform for the Boy Scouts of America, and then reinterpreting it into full garments and pieces that you could actually put in your wardrobe is something that I I really wanted to do. And that has so much (laughs) stitching on it. You know, those jackets take days. It's funny because it would make more sense to do it before the garments made, (laughs) you know, but of course you can do a lot of the stitching by machine, but then when you get to the arms or on top of the pockets, you have to do it by hand. It's just like a really almost therapeutic (laughs) thing is applying all of these patches. Some of them are from as early as like the 1890s up through, we have some on the same jacket that says like 1989. It's really cool, you know, to be able to see that all in one place. And it's like telling this history of America. The carefully upcycled clothes of Bodhi represent one of the most exciting developments in fashion today. The idea that, with clever and inventive stitching, we can not only reuse old fabric, but continue to adapt our garments as they grow older. But she's certainly not the first designer to experiment with stitching, or see how much further it could be taken. Here's Andrew Groves again to explain more. In the 21st century, methods of joining fabrics together are becoming ever more innovative and sometimes don't even utilize stitching. Ultrasonic sewing is a process that uses ultrasonic vibration to heat materials and fuse them together, making the needle and thread a thing of the past. One example of this new technology is the Speedo LZR Elite swimsuit, where the seams are ultrasonically welded to reduce drag and enhance performance while swimming. Designers that continue to use stitching in novel ways include Martin Margiela, who launched his fashion brand Maison Martin Margiela in 1988 and is credited with popularizing deconstruction within a fashion context. He allowed seams and stitching to be exposed on the outside of garments, details which would have been previously hidden internally. This aesthetic was transferred to the treatment of his label. While it bears no writing, it is held in place with four white stitches, which are visible on the outside of all his garments. In effect, this striking detail has become Margiela's branding. Whilst modern designers have used exposed stitching to make a statement and subvert expectations around how clothes should look, visible stitching has its roots in much older traditions around the world. One of these traditions can be found in Japan, in a mending technique called boro, a word meaning tattered cloth or rags. The technique takes old and unwearable items of clothing and repairs them by patchworking indigo fabric 
using visible white thread. Boro uses the Japanese idea of wabi-sabi, which is focused on the acceptance of imperfections and transience. As Japanese menswear designers rise to ever greater prominence in the West, we're getting more and more used to talking about the artisanal techniques, such as boro, that they reference. Scroll through Mr. Porter on any given day, and you're likely to see a wide variety of patchworked garments inspired by boro, from brands like Capital, Blue Blue Japan, and even American and European brands such as RRL and Lueve. The other reference that crops up again and again in Japanese designer collections is sashiko, the traditional stitch that, in borrow pieces, is typically used to fasten layers of indigo cotton fabric together. To have a look at some spectacular examples of this technique, we sent Mr. Porter buying consultant Kari Oyama to Ebisu in Tokyo to speak to designer and sashiko collector Gaku Tsuyoshi, who runs the menswear brand Fundamental. This is Gaku. He spends a lot of time trawling old barns, forgotten buildings and flea markets in search of particularly fine examples of Boro and Sashiko. In his time, he's uncovered gems from unexpected places, including a large piece of Sashiko fabric that was slung over a tractor on a farm. He also uses Sashiko himself both to mend his own clothing and also in his designs for fundamental. The technique of sashiko is used to strengthen garments, so it's basically sewing the thread on the fabrication. Normally, two, three fabrications are used and they're sewn together in order to strengthen the garments. And as a decoration, a lot of the times sashiko uses geometric patterns who used the um, sashiko techniques in the past? It was generally used by a lot of people in Japan 100, 200 years ago. When, for instance, after using the garment for a long time, there are some parts to be repaired. What they did was to have a couple of layers of fabrics and then they used the sashiko techniques to sew the fabrics together to strengthen the original garment itself. The sashiko stitch, made by pushing a long needle through several folds of fabric at once with a palm-mounted thimble, made it possible for worn-out pieces of clothing to be pieced together and made into new garments. After being stitched together, the fabrics were not only stronger, but also warmer. The stitches appeared as small, short lines, usually made in white to contrast with the blue of the indigo, and were often manipulated within a grid shape to be decorative as well. There's a huge range of patterns and designs that can and have been created with sashiko, with various shapes representing mountains, bamboo, pampas grass, lightning and persimmon flower, as well as geometric designs. So Sashiko normally uses the geometric patterns and on a lot of Sashikos they use a lot of crosses and radial lines. Those radial lines actually expresses the patterns of the waves and a lot of them natural features. 
that's interpreted with the thread. But when it comes to the repair side of things, there are actually no rules because back in the days, Sashiko's techniques were used in every household. Hence, everyone did it in their own way. Here, Gaku tells Kaori about a large piece of indigo cloth that he found on one of his Sashiko missions out of Tokyo. It seemed to have been made at home, out of sheer necessity, with little interest in the decorative techniques. The indigo had faded over time and was many different shades of blue. He was looking at one of the vintage Sashiko fabrics and he could tell that the person that did the Sashiko were just playing around with the fabric and there were no uniformity to the lines. The characteristic of indigo, the colour phase as you wear it, and that is one of the things that Fundamental puts its importance on. They like for the customers to wear it for a long time so they can repair it. Fundamental's brand concept is by wearing it a lot, they want customers to say, for instance, love the garment itself more as you use it. Generally, people purchases the garments and then by using it, it devalues the piece of clothing, but fundamental thinks in an opposite way. They think that by using the garment a lot, it gives more value to the garment itself. And that's why they think using the technique of Sashiko is a good way to keep the garment alive and continuously use the garment. Gaku is not only a collector of Sashiko, but also a practitioner. He finds it a peaceful and meditative process that allows him to unwind, as well as to build a unique relationship with the pieces he works on. Gaku says, of course, there are emotional attachment to the clothes. By doing Sashiko stitches, it becomes the only piece of clothing for you. Even if other people look at it, it might not look like that to them. For him, it would be a special piece of clothing. Here, Gaku pulls out one of the biggest pieces from his collection, a bulky patchwork throw made up of many pieces of fabric roughly sewn together. It's heavy and worn, but clearly much loved. So we see a vintage fabric in front of us. There are around three to four layers. On top of the original fabric, there are brown Czech fabrics. And then on the very top, there are indigo fabric. And it's all being stitched using the Sashiko technique. From the top, it looks as if there's a big hole. But that is the beauty of this vintage Sashiko fabric. And Agaku likes how damaged it looks. What he does is to actually have it hang on a wall if he finds like a beautiful element on the piece. Or on another hand, on some pieces, he would actually unpick the sashiko thread because he is keen to find out what's actually inside the layers. 
And he sometimes makes a product out of what he finds inside layers. This one was like uh, five millimeter, eight millimeter thick of the fabric, and uh, we take all the stitch out. Then the, uh, this is our really first time to you know, open the fabric. So we found so many vintage old you know, fabric. When they got the hole, then maybe people put as many fabric as they can. So usually, you know, this kind of fabric has only like three, four layers of the same fabric. But mm -hmm. this is my really first time to find so many, you know, kinds of small pieces. I was like a treasure hunter. <laughs> so yeah. then uh, we made uh, uh, van shoes or a new air cap with this vintage uh, fabric. But that was not for sale because of the limitation. Here, he points to his favourite piece, the new era cap, a big smile on his face. This is mine. <laughs> yes. Not for sale. Not for sale. <laughs> Stitching, for me, exemplifies a wider truth about fashion, that really its future is often in its past. In a pre-industrial world, before mass-produced, ready-to-wear clothing, Stitching would have been a fact of day-to-day -day life. Today, it's much more hidden, but increasingly, it's also a commodity, a sign that what you're holding in your hands is something authentic, with its own story, human provenance, and signs of love and care. It's maybe unclear as yet whether this is part of a bigger movement, whether one day we will move from simply admiring and desiring artisanal stitching to becoming reinvested in the process, to understanding that stitching isn't just about what we buy, but about how we keep alive what we own. But as the fashion industry slowly starts to face its own environmental crisis, perhaps we will see things differently and start thinking about ways to reuse, repurpose, reinvigorate. In this sense, though it might sound ridiculous to say it, perhaps stitching can save us. You've been listening to The Details, a podcast from Mr. Porter, produced by Chalk and Blade. The producer was Eva Krishiak. The assistant producer was Hester Kant. The executive producer was Ruth Barnes. Mixed by Chris Wood. Music by Adam Lieber and Julian Guidetti. To listen to all six episodes, search for the Mr. Porter podcast on your podcast provider, or visit our site at mrporter.com forward slash the details. To hear more from Mr. Porter, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Porter Live. Or check out our online magazine, The Journal, at mrporter.com forward slash journal. Alterations for this episode were done by Charlotte Sweet at Sonrite, which we would thoroughly recommend for anyone in London who needs an inch or two taken off their trouser hems. You can find out more about Sewn Right services at sewnright.co.uk and via Mr. Porter in the near future.